All right, thank you, Justin. We'll be in the book of Hebrews tonight, book of Hebrews. Picking up where we left off in the study. Does anyone need a handout uh, that doesn't have one? I think Mike could grab the stack. If you need a handout, raise your hand. And uh, Mike has, we have one up here. And uh, that's to follow, we, we're, uh, we're gonna be highlighting, underlining, making notes, if that's something you wanna follow along with. You can either follow along in your Bible or grab one of the, one of the handouts. All right, well, I hope you're looking forward to digging back into the book of Hebrews tonight. Uh, we started things off last week talking about um, Jesus having the final word and being better than angels, greater than angels. The point of which is that the message of angels, which was the law, is, is not as great as the message of Jesus Christ. We need to pay all the more careful attention uh, to that message and don't neglect the salvation that he has offered to us. And uh, we started into chapter 2 and uh, making our way through that. But it's really actually very appropriate that we come to this passage right before Christmas. Because this is actually a Christmas passage. This whole passage is talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus have to become a human being? There's so much more to that story, to that miracle really, than just a cute baby in a manger on, in Bethlehem. Um, it points to his, his mission, his purpose for arriving on this planet. Why did he take on human flesh? And in powerfully deep language, the author of Hebrews sets forth Jesus as the author of our salvation and shows the necessity and the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Just as a reminder, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior, Jesus is better, and uh, he's speaking to those that have deep roots in Judaism and the law, and he's communicating to them that, that, that you don't need to revert back. You don't need to go back to those ways. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is, he is superior. And when you go through difficult times, you can cling to Jesus. Uh, so that's the theme as we continue going through this book. And as I, as I mentioned last time, we looked at Jesus' superiority to angels and how we should pay very close attention to his message and not neglect his salvation. We made it down through uh, up until verse 5. And uh, we're going to begin by reading uh, verses 5 through 9 and then dig into those verses. And uh, what I'm going to do, I'll, I'll pray for us to, to, to um, ask the Spirit to guide us as we read. And then as I read it, I want you, one, one helpful tip that I've highlighted before is when we read Scripture, look for repeated words or themes. So I want you to be doing that as I read and see if you can uh, highlight those um, uh, before we dig in. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing us to it. Help us as we dig into it that we would uh, feast on its truth, that we would think deeply on it, and then apply it practically to our lives. We thank you uh, for Jesus. Thank you for uh, the gift of your son coming to earth. Help us to appreciate that gift for all it's worth. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, verse 5 of chapter 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Did anyone find any repeated words or ideas? Subjection, very good. So there's subjected right there. There is subjection right here. Subjection, subjection. Let me see, did I get them all? All right, anything else? Spot anything else? Okay, so that's a theme that was repeated a couple times. A little lower than the angels. A little lower than the angels. That's repeated twice. You could even just highlight the word angels, right? I mean, angels right here, 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 and that's carryover from the last passage that highlighted angels and Christ superior to it. Anything else? All right, so as we dig into this passage, it's always important to make sure we are linking it with what is previous and we're reading it in context. And the first word of verse five is for. So what is this, how is this verse contributing to the argument? It's giving a reason, all right? It's, 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 it's backing up a previous claim. So let's look back and say, what is it, what is it a reason for? We just finished hearing about how, we, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We should pay close attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So we just finished last time a whole series of arguments and quotations saying how Jesus is better than angels. Do you remember that? And here in verse five, he's kind of giving one more. He's saying, it's, God did not subject the angel, or did not subject the world to come to angels. So the implied answer is, who did he subject the world to come to? Jesus Christ. Well, it, and if somebody said man, uh, that will come into play here. Um, but the world to come, and, and that's really important. It doesn't say this current world, but this world to come, right? The future kingdom. We see earlier that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are put under his feet, right? So there's a future dominion that is in view here, and God is going to subject the world to come to Christ, to the Son, not to angels. And again, the superiority of Jesus is on display. Verses 6 through 8 quotes a psalm. It says at the beginning of verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. And I know there weren't verse references in the the Bible originally, but I like to think this was the author forgetting a scripture reference like I do all the time. All right. It's been testified somewhere. I can't can't place it, but it's somewhere in the Bible. Um, But it is where? Psalm 8. That's exactly right. And we actually looked at this psalm when we were studying the book of Psalms. This is one of our first ones uh, earlier on that we looked at. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or, heavenly, or the angels, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So before we look at how it's being used in Hebrews chapter 2, let's remember how it's being used in Psalm 8. We've seen that Jesus is greater than the angels, but now we're introduced to someone who's a little lower than the angels. Who's that in Psalm 8? Mankind. All right, so what is man or the son of man? And the uh, Hebrew word for right here is Adam, Adam. All right. What is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. And you've given him dominion. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And you've put everything in subjection under his feet. Um, this is referring back to the creation account in Genesis 1.28. When God gives mankind dominion. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in context of Psalm 8, the psalmist is saying, what is man? And when I look at the work of your fingers, what is man that you're even mindful of him, or you even think of him, and yet you've given him dominion, right? So he's, he's marveling at the privileged position that God has placed man in. And we see in Psalm 8 an order of dominion. And we actually observe this in our study of Psalm 8, but I want to review it for the purpose of this passage. What is the order of dominion that, that Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2 lay, lays out? Well, at the top, it's God. All right, who's next going down? Well, man, look at, look at, look at verse 7. You made him a little lower than the angels. All right, so who's next? The angels, right? Angels are next. And then man, and then what? Yeah, all, the rest of creation, right? So here's the, here's the created order. Here's, here's the ideal, so to speak. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. And you have put everything in subjection under his feet. Here is this privileged possession, okay? God, angels, Man is a little bit lower than the angels, and he was put in dominion over all of creation. Look in verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, who's the him? I think it's still man, all right? He left, that's God, left nothing outside of his, man's control. But at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what is he describing in verse 8? We see the ideal, but in reality, how, how does this flesh out to what we view in the real world today as far as man's dominion over creation? Does it look like we have dominion? <coughs> No, I mean, I mean, in many ways, it feels like creation has dominion over us. Right? Natural disasters, um, death and decay. There, there are things that, that reveal to us that we very much don't have much dominion 
going on. So in other words, something is fundamentally broken in this created order. What has happened that has, that has caused this to be fundamentally flawed? It's sin, right? The curse of sin. And what has entered into the picture because of sin? Death. All right, Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So, man is made lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put everything in subjection under his feet. But at the present time, right now, in our lived experience, we don't see everything in subjection to him. The present reality is not lining up to the ideal. Something is broken, right? So through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And rather, instead of exercising dominion over creation, man introduced the sickness, the, cur- the curse that upends the created order. In fact, when we were going through Psalm 8, we noticed something kind of interesting. How in Genesis 1, God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. And then the curse happens, and then the flood happens, and then Noah and his family are out of the ark, and God says to Noah and his family, in the context of the curse and death being in the world, be fruitful and multiply, period. It's almost like the word dominion, he doesn't continue to the dominion part. Now, there's a sense in which mankind still has dominion over creation. We're still the apex of God's created order, but there's something fundamentally different. Something is broken because sin has entered the world, and that sin has brought death into the world, and it has spread to all men, to all creation. Verse 9, or verse 8 says, we don't see everything in subjection, but what do we see? Verse 9. But we see him, and who is the him? That's exactly correct. It's Jesus, namely Jesus, right? So if you follow the sentence, but we see him, while we see this world all messed up, what do we see? We see Jesus, who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels. So he is pulling the exact same language as the quote from Psalm 8 to describe Jesus. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Again, same language as up here. You've crowned him with glory and honor. And we see that man basically failed in that, right? God gave him this privileged position. The first Adam failed, messed up. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So let's go back to our created order. Last time we saw that Jesus is lower than the angels or greater than the angels? Greater, greater right? So Jesus is up here. He's equal with God. We saw that in the, in the where, where you know, the Lord said to my Lord, you know, today I have begotten you, that, that, that God refers to Jesus, his son, in terms of deity. And so Jesus is above the angels. But because man has brought sin and death into the world, what did Jesus do? He, for a little while, made himself lower than the angels. He's greater than the angels, and that never changes. His nature never changes. He doesn't stop being greater than the angels. But in terms of position, he willingly lowers himself 
to the level of man. And we see that he actually ends up succeeding where mankind fails. So mankind is crowned with glory and honor, but when Jesus lowers himself, he is crowned with glory and honor, and how does he accomplish that? Look at, look at verse 9. It tells us how he accomplished it. Be, good, because, again, this is why these connecting words are so important. It tells you the relationship between phrases. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So how did he achieve glory and honor? Through suffering and through his death. Think of What's that? Taking on sin. Taking on sin, right. So he took on sin. And my mind goes to Philippians 2, right? 1 through 11, but particularly 8 through 11. He was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And therefore, God has what? Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He's crowned with glory and honor. And how did he achieve that? Through his suffering and through his death. And where do we see the reason for all of this? Why did Jesus lower himself? Why was he crowned with glory and honor uh, because of the suffering of death? What drove him? What was he trying to accomplish according to verse 9? He is right there at the end. I think I heard someone say it. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the means by which he accomplishes this is the grace of God. The purpose is so that he might taste death. And who's the benefit or who's the recipients who who gets the advantage of this everyone he is doing this for the good of his creation mankind so he enters creation jesus enters creation makes himself a little lower than the angels to do what to take on sin and death to you could say absorb the curse to take on the problem that has separated mankind from his creator, that has upended the created order. And if we go back to Romans chapter 5, we saw earlier that by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. It says later in verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so, you see the story of the first Adam and the second Adam. Romans 5.21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus enters as the second Adam, correcting the failure of the first Adam. And again, how did he do this? How did he accomplish this? He was greater than the angels. He willingly lowered himself below the angels to become a man. 
He entered a sin-cursed world, suffered and tasted death for us, and as a result, was crowned with glory and honor. And as we see back in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Why did Jesus come? So that he could save us and redeem us from the problem that we created, that we've messed up, and only Christ can enter into this world and fix the problem. He wanted to taste death for everyone. Any questions or comments on that? Yes, Paul. And he had to become a man to be our kinsman redeemer. That's exactly correct. We're going to see why it's so necessary that he had to become a human and a hundred percent human. Um, because there's no other way that, that, that could work. Yes, Linda. Is that something also to do with the Son of Man with a capital S that he's the son, versus the Son of Man with a smaller? There's definitely a parallel there, yeah. Um, uh, um, the Son of Man, which is referring to mankind, right? Um, but that, we also see that's a title for Jesus Christ, right? He is the Son of Man. We saw that in Mark that he is the Son of Man, capital S, which is tied to Old Testament prophecies, that the one like the Son of Man would appear in the clouds. So yeah, there's definitely, you see that representative thing, right? He is the Son of Man to rescue the sons of men, right? Yeah, good. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Look in verse 10 with me. For, again, there's a connecting word. For. So how is this explained? Well, it's answering the question, why did he come to earth? Why did he have to taste death? All right, why was he made lower than the angels? Why did he have to taste death? For it was fitting. Now, when you see the word fitting, what's that communicating? Necessity, Necessity. good, right? This was appropriate. This is how it needs to be. It's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So let's identify the actors in here. It is fitting that he, who is the he? Okay. It's fitting that he, well, sometimes this helps, all right? Isolate the sentence. Get rid of the modifying phrases. Isolate the sentence, okay? For it is fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There's the nugget. There's the... So, he is making the founder of their salvation. Who's the founder of their salvation? That's Jesus, okay? So, if this is Jesus, who's this? God the Father. Again, there's, a, there's a, a, a descriptor of him, for whom and by whom all things exist, which, coincidentally, is also a description of Jesus that we see in chapter 1. Um, so this is the Father. It was necessary for the Father to make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. And we'll get to that word perfect here in a second. Um, what was his goal in making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering? What was he trying to do? Extended mercy. 
He, was, he wanted to extend his mercy. And where do we see that played out in verse 10? Which, which phrase points to him extending his mercy? Yeah, bringing many sons to glory. I love this phrase. Why did Jesus lower himself below the angels? So that he could bring us back up with him. He's bringing many sons to glory, right? We're stuck in here in sin and death. So Jesus comes down because we can't go up, right? We, we can't ascend to heaven. We're stuck in our sin. And so Jesus comes down. And in order to bring many sons to glory, the Father makes Jesus perfect through suffering. The goal is that he could bring us up. He came down to take us with him. I think of John 14, right? When Jesus told his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I may be, you may be also. So in order to bring us up with him, he had to come down. And he's bringing many sons to glory. We're going to begin to see this family connection between us and Jesus, which is just a wonderful truth that we see in Hebrews. Let's look a little bit at this founder of their salvation title. We see this elsewhere in Hebrews 12, 2, looking into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? Jesus is the founder of their salvation. This is a lot of words you could translate this Greek word with. Pioneer, captain, champion or conqueror, author of what? Our salvation. So this is someone who stands in front, clears the way for others to follow. Jesus, you could say, Jesus entered the prison and bust down the doors. He, he took down death so that he could deliver us from death. And so it was necessary, it was fitting for the Father to make Jesus perfect through suffering. Okay, someone want to tell me what in the world that means to say that Jesus, the Son of God, had to be made perfect? What does that mean? Complete. All right, good. Let's, uh, let's, let's get out of the way what it doesn't mean. All right, what, is it, what does it not mean? Yeah. yeah, that he was imperfect, that uh, there was a moral deficiency, or, or even in the sense that while it, perfect does mean complete, it's not meaning that there was something lacking in Jesus that had to be filled up, right? Does anyone want to take a stab at in what sense Jesus had to be made perfect? He had to suffer, right? Which is what it says. He was made perfect through suffering. Why is it, and in what sense, did suffering make Jesus perfect? Yes. He had to be made like man. He had to be made like man. He had never suffered before, right? So Jesus had never, you don't suffer as God. So he had to become man in order to suffer. All right. And why does that make you perfect or complete? Okay, to satisfy God's wrath. In other words, it points to what he's trying to accomplish, right? So, any other thoughts? Yes? Did it have anything to do with the 
That is something that is mentioned um, later on. Uh, Hebrews 5, verse 8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So there's a level in such he was, he was obedi- obeying through suffering, which made him perfect. Yeah, Joe. Well, I think about, I thought I were thinking back to the Old Testament, where the sacrifice had to be uh, without blemish. Okay, right, the perfect lamb, right? A spotless lamb, the perfect lamb. Okay, Justin. So because he was never tested before, it's the proving of that test as being perfect and worthy as the sacrifice. Okay, good. So he's, we could say he's, he's proving himself to be the perfect sacrifice. Um, so... This is, this is, we, it's not morally perfect. There's not something lacking in Jesus. He's the perfect son of God, but through his death on the cross, he becomes a perfect savior. All right, that's what's being communicated here. He's perfect, but in order for him to become the perfect savior, which is right here, the founder of their salvation, he had to suffer. Becky. Right, correct. Yeah, so he had to suffer for our sins. In order to suffer, he had to become a man, right? Yeah, Mike. It was like a confirmation of his perfection? It was a confirmation. That that's part of it. But in fact, he, he could not be a perfect savior if he did not suffer and die, right? So while his nature, his morality is perfect, his work as a founder of our salvation would not be perfect if he did not become a man and suffer. So you're saying it's kind of like he's taking that position? As the founder, and, founder of our salvation? Yeah. yeah. As far as what, what perfect is referring to? That would be, yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. He said that there's no greater love than to give your life to mm-hmm. someone else. And, and so in doing that, he shows us the perfect example of his teaching that he just spent 33 years teaching yeah. love each other, make others more important than himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if greater love hath no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friend, right? God, who, is, who cannot die, right? Can he actually do that? N- not until he becomes a man, <laughs> right? And so he's actually, the incarnation makes it possible for him to show that kind of love, right? Any other thoughts? Yes, Bobby. That would definitely be connected to it, right? It's finished. It's paid in full, right? So he's the perfect sacrifice for the perfect payment for our sins. Um, So he's he's the perfect savior, right? You don't have to look anywhere else. This is what's being communicated here. There's nothing lacking in his role as the captain and founder of our salvation. And we'll see this perfection again of Jesus later in Hebrews. But skip down real quick, actually, to verse 17. Verse 17 of the same chapter. And here we see this idea come up again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So there we see his role both as the high priest and as the perfect sacrifice. 
In order for him to be a perfect savior, he had to be our perfect high priest, and he had to be our perfect sacrifice. And he cannot be either of those if he does not become a man, to become our representative. And it's only through that that he can become both a merciful and a faithful high priest. So, in short, in order to become a perf- be a perfect savior, he had to be a perfect high priest. And in order to be a perfect high priest, he has to be able to sympathize with us. And in order for him to sympathize with us, he, made, he must be made like his brothers in every single respect. And because of his suffering, Jesus becomes the perfect one to rescue us from sin and death. And that's why it says it is It was fitting that he made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering because there's no other way that Jesus could be the perfect savior for us. Again, we'll see later in chapter five. He learned obedience through what he suffered. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. So he had to exhibit perfect obedience in his suffering because if he didn't, he can't be a high priest. He'd, he'd need his own high priest, right? So in order for him to be the high priest, he had to exhibit perfect obedience. And in doing so, he becomes the high priest and also the perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb for us. And that was only possible through suffering. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes? I'd have to look into the, the Greek word for that. I, I think at, at the very least it's communicating the idea of um, experience or had to go through it himself, right? He had to go through obedience. Um, so he had to obey in suffering. He had to kind of experience that firsthand, right? So learning in the sense that you're seeing for yourself, you know, with your own eyes. Jesus had to go through that himself, learn that. He, did, he didn't have to figure out what obedience was. He wasn't learning, how do I obey God? in this, right? He's saying he had to go through that crucible. Like exercise. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, like exercise. All right. Verse 11. And this, this, is, this, this gets to a really cool point here. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them Brothers, Again, let's identify who we're talking about here. He who sanctifies. Who's that? I think specifically Jesus. All right. Those who are sanctified, who's that? Us. Us. All have one source. Now in the Greek, it says literally, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. All right? Um, different English versions will take this differently. Um, communicating the same idea, NASB will say all from one father. Uh, NIV will say of the same family. Um, the Greek is all from one. Actually, the King James translated it that way. It says all of one. Right? In other words, it's saying that when, when I think one mistake we can make in reading this is that Jesus 
finds his source in the Father, right? In other words, he came from the Father, he was born of the Father, he was generated by the Father. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying that God, Jesus was created like we are. But what is it saying? Jesus and us are lumped together in the same group, right? We are of the same family. We are all from one. We're of the same family. And because of that, what? Because we're of the same source, we're of the same family, what? Yeah, Jesus calls us brothers. And more than that, how and what spirit does he call us brothers? We're part of the family. Is he embarrassed? He's not, right? Have you ever been embarrassed uh, by you know, identifying yourself with a sibling? <laughs> he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus looks at us and calls us family, which is just crazy to think about. The Son of God, the one who's better than angels, comes down, takes on flesh and blood, suffers and dies, and is not ashamed, not embarrassed, not too proud to admit that we're his family, that we're his brothers and his sisters. And, I mean, and when you think about it, if there's any sibling that you'd be ashamed to identify with, it'd be the sibling that was like, you know, tried to kill you, right? Which is what we've done with Jesus. I mean, it's our sin that puts him on the cross, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, by suffering and dying on the cross, he identifies with us and isn't shamed to be lumped together with us. And like I mentioned, not ashamed is that idea of not being too proud to admit something, right? I don't know you, right? You have been embarrassed by a sibling or a parent, right? Where you're kind of like staying far off and not wanting to associate yourself with them, right? That's not Jesus, right? He points to you, he's like, that's my brother, that's my sister, I'm not ashamed to admit it. It's interesting. Yes? As long as they are sanctified. As long as they're part of the family. Yeah. Right? Yeah. As long as they're part of, and, and, and if you're in the family, right, doesn't matter if you're a first-time believer or a seasoned believer, right? It doesn't matter if you're still struggling with sin or you're, you're more mature in your sanctification. He'll look at you and say, you're my brother, you're my sister, right? Um, in fact, it's interesting to note, do you know when Jesus starts referring to his disciples as his brothers? In the Gospels? There is one point where it says earlier on, those who do the will of my father are my mother, sister, brothers, right? But specifically to his disciples, you know the first time when he calls them his brothers? After the resurrection. Matthew 28, verse 10. After he was raised, Jesus said to, his, to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce says, The Son of God is not ashamed to acknowledge them as his brothers and sisters, not only as those whose nature he took upon himself, but those whose trials he endured, for whose sins he made atonement, that they might follow him to glory on the path of salvation which he himself has cut. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. So this Christmas time, right? We're celebrating Jesus coming to earth. So much more than just a baby in a manger. 
He is coming to identify with us, to stand in solidarity with us and call us family and bring many sons to glory. Any thoughts, questions on that before we move on? Yeah, Mike. It, it just seems like ultimate love. Yeah, yeah. But, um, how could you put it any other way that, um, mm-hmm. that he accepted us all? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and especially due to the fact that it was, it was our failure, right? Everything was put in dominion under our feet, and we, we blew it. We messed it up, right? And God has every right to just go, okay, right? I'm, I'm done with you. But he entered, and he, and he, and he identified with us, and he, would, and he took on not just flesh, but he took upon himself the form of a servant, right? And then he suffered the most humiliating death possible. He went lower than we're willing to go. That's how much he loves us. He points, any, any other questions or comments? Yeah, just. So is that kind of the basis of, how does that work with like adoption, you know, in the Bible? I mean, is that kind of like the starting point mm-hmm. for us? Or how does that? Are you talking about adoption in terms of salvation? Uh, the, the starting point, yes, I, I, that's definitely, connect, how can Jesus call, how can we be adopted into his family, right? It's because Jesus entered our world and identifies with us, took on flesh, and can call us his brothers. And so those who believe in him are adopted into his family, become sons of glory. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts, questions? Yeah. What, what's the problem with the world today? It's who has dominion, and mankind thinks it has dominion mm-hmm. instead of giving dominion to the proper person. That's right. Yeah. We, we, although we know that this world is completely broken, like, it's messed up. And yet we still stand there in our pride thinking, yeah, yeah, we got this. We can figure this out. And, and, and Jesus is the one who, who will one day, all, all of his enemies will be placed under his feet. He will rule. He, is, he has the authority, and we would be wise to give dominion over to him. Quickly, uh, the, the, he quotes three Old Testament texts to point with Christ, to Christ's solidarity with his brothers. Three Old Testament texts. Some of these are really easy to see the connection. Others are a little harder, and I won't spend a whole lot of time going into the connection too much because that would be a long discussion. We, we perhaps will be able to jump back into it uh, next time. The first one in verse 12 comes from Psalm 22, in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, what do we know about Psalm 22? This is a messianic psalm. Verse 1 of Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so there are allusions to Christ, the Messiah, all throughout Psalm 22, and it's in that context, talks about Jesus, or the Messiah, telling of your name, the Father, to my brothers. So there's a solidarity with creation. That one's pretty easy. The second one is Isaiah 8, verse 17. So I will put my trust in him. This is a Septuagint translate. So Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Old Testament translated into Greek. And oftentimes when you see Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, they're using the Septuagint. Uh, this is from Isaiah 8:17, which in our English Bibles will say, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. It's that last phrase. The context of this passage in Isaiah 8 is Isaiah trusting in God 
while the house of Jacob is rejecting him and the Lord hiding his face from Jacob. Much like in Psalm 22, when the Messiah is being rejected by others. And so in a sense, you could say Jesus is identifying with the prophet Isaiah, who had, a, had to trust in times of rejection. He is identifying with him. The final one is actually a next verse over in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Isaiah 8, 18 says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs importance in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. And this is a little tougher to find the connection, but Isaiah in that context is talking about him and the children, the little children, the literal children that God has given him in this context of being rejected and forsaken by the, the nation of Israel. Many people draw allusions to John 17, 6 through 7, where Jesus prays to the Father and says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And so this sense that God is identifying with the children that God has given to him. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Verse 14 continues to explain what, why it was necessary for him to identify with his people. Since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, right? When we see children here, that's talking about just children of mankind. Since we share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He had to become fully human. This is the only way for him to have solidarity with his people. There's some false teachings out there that says that Jesus wasn't fully human. He was part human or he appeared as human. Why is that a false teaching? Well, if he's not fully human, can he identify with the children of man? He cannot. It's a, it's a facade. It's fake, right? He's giving the appearance of identification. He's not actually identifying. But here it says, since we share in flesh and blood, he had to partake of all those same things. And why did he have to experience flesh and blood? So that he could genuinely die a human death. What was his mission? He had two objectives. Deliver and uh, the, oh, hold on. Um, destroy. Destroy is the first one and deliver. So who is he seeking to destroy? The devil. That through death he might uh, destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. And then who is he seeking to deliver? Us. Namely, those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. So he's destroying the one with the power of death. He's delivering those in the bondage of death. And what weapon does he use? The cross. He uses death, right? That through death. Whose death? His death. He took the weapon of his death to destroy the one who has the power of death, to deliver those, that's us, who are subject to the fear of death. He used the weapon of death to do it. And he had to become like a man. He had to become a man. 
Verse 16 continues, for surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You know, we go back to this hierarchy of dominion, right? He's, he's, not, he's not helping the angels. They're fine. <laughs> it's man. It's man that messed things up. And he's, he's helping the offspring. He's giving all the attention to the offspring of Abraham. It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where it talks about how the gospel talks of things into which angels long to look. Right? They're looking down, marveling that Christ made himself lower than the angels and is helping the children of Abraham. You know, kinda, Christ kind of passed by them, focused on the children of Abraham, and they're longing to look at it. They're marveling at what Christ is doing. Justin, you had your hand up. We always think of death, but I think of death as separation. Mm-hmm. And so this is a little different for me. So the lifelong slavery is that sin position, or is that that separation? And what if it is, why is there two things between that and where is there two Are you saying, what are we enslaved to? Yeah, so it says, and deliver those who through the fear of death, mm-hmm. which I always take as a separation because we can't hear them. Mm-hmm. lifelong slavery right. would also be death. Yes, yeah, so I, I think that's, I think these are um, communicating the same predicament, so to speak. Um, that we're in fear of death, it's almost like an evil taskmaster, right? We're enslaved to death and we're in fear of it, right? And it's in terms specifically of sin brings death. Right? So when we think of death, we're thinking ultimately of the curse of sin that has brought it. Right? Lifelong separation from God. Yeah, yeah, so right. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and Jesus had used the power of death, the, the tool of death, his own death, to rescue those who are in bondage to death itself. Any other thoughts, questions? Mike? I keep thinking of the angels looking at Jesus in awe of what he's doing. And then, then I think of Revelation when he's the only one that can, has the, uh, is worthy. Yes. Is worthy to open the book. Yes. Who is worthy to open the scrolls, right? The lamb is worthy. Um, yeah, the angels are marveling. In fact, you know, we've seen in Ephesians where Jesus, God displays to the principalities and powers in heavenly places his manifold wisdom by pointing at what? The church. He looks at this ragtag band of, you know, foolish people that are saved by his blood and saying, that's my wisdom. Look, and he's pointing to the, he's showing the angels, he's showing the principalities and powers what's going on. It's, it's perfect love. Verse 17, and we'll start to wind things down here. Again, we see this thought highlighted yet again. Therefore, since if he's going to help his brother, help the offspring of Abraham, right? If he's going to do this, he had to be made like his brothers to what extent? Every single respect. And this is why we say that Jesus was 100% human. 100% God, 100% man. Because he had to be made like his, and here's that family connection again, his brothers in every single respect. 
Why did he have to do that? So that, here's that purpose, he might become a high priest, but there's two descriptors for this high priest. Merciful and faithful. I think we could say merciful to us, faithful to the Father. And the only reason he could do that effectively is through becoming a complete human being in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is a $2 million word right here. Does anyone know what propitiation is communicating? In the simplest. Yeah, that's, that's, that, is, that is in it, but that wouldn't be the entirety of what propitiation is referring to. What's that? Okay, yeah, that, that's, that's communicated in there as well. Good, any other thoughts? A satisfying payment. Yes, it's, it's a, so propitiation is to satisfy the wrath of something. So whose wrath is being satisfied? God, right? In fact, the uh, theme of propitiation goes back to the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. You go past the Holy of Holies through the curtain, there's the Ark, and what is the lid of the Ark called? The mercy seat. And the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and thereby bringing propitiation, appeasing the wrath of God for the sins of the people by sprinkling that blood on the mercy seat. And so here we see that Jesus becomes both the high priest, the one bringing the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, and also the sacrifice, shedding his blood and making propitiation for the sins of of the people. And he had to become a man in order to do this. And we'll, next time, which is in two weeks, we'll, we'll start to dig into more of this idea, which we find in verse 18, that for he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And what an incredibly comforting verse. That because Jesus became a man, he can help those who are being tempted because he himself was tempted. He can identify with your weakness. He can identify with your sorrow. He can identify with your pain. He has experienced all those things firsthand, right? It's an incredible thought to think that the Son of God, God in flesh, the creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe, can look at your sorrow and your, your tears and your pain and say, I know what you're going through. That's crazy. He can do that because he, he felt it. He became a perfect high priest. So not only is he our propitiation, he is our high priest. He sympathizes with us. He identifies with us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. So think of the, the, the verse in as the deer, right? You're my friend and you are my brother, even though you are a king. What an incredible thought. That Jesus, who is, who is in the beginning with the Father, creator of the world, sustainer of the universe by his word, can save you and identify with you and call you his brother. George. He entered our world so we could enter his. That's exactly right. Bringing many sons to glory. He came down so he could bring us with him. And, uh, and again, I, I, I've, I remember, I think I've alluded to this before, but in, in college, I, uh, I remember hearing other philosophies, worldviews of, of salvation, how other 
systems of religion view salvation, right? And, and in Islam, one, one Islamic scholar says, it is up to man to rend the veil and make their way toward God. <laughs> and Jesus, the word says, I rent the veil and I came down toward you so that I could bring you to myself. That's the gospel. And going back to what it says at the beginning of chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Why would you ignore this? You should pay all the more careful attention to what you have heard. Because, and then he goes on to say, let me show you how incredible the gospel is. Right? This is not just a cute story for Christmas. This is, this is miraculous. This is the only way that you can have salvation. It's the only way that Jesus can save you from your sins. He has to become a man. He has to identify with your suffering. He has to share in flesh and blood so that he could call you his brothers and sisters and so that he could rescue you from the curse of sin and death that you brought in through your own sin. He rescues you. He delivers you. Don't neglect that. Don't ignore that. And this time of year, we have, we have people that are open to the message of Jesus coming to earth, or at least familiar with it. It becomes tradition. It becomes kind of, you know, just part of the season. But we need to pray that, that, that people will realize what exactly is going on in there. What level of humiliation and, and condescension is taking place when Jesus takes on flesh and blood for the sins of the world. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, being such an incredibly loving God. We, we marvel, Lord, at your perfection your grace, um, your condescension to us. Lord, help us never to get over it. Help us never to drift away from it. Help us never to forget it or neglect it. We rejoice and thank you for this wonderful gift of salvation because of your son coming to earth. Help us to remember that this Christmas season. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Don't forget, no Wednesday evening next week. Enjoy your Christmas holiday.